Thank you very much. I'm just quickly going to, to start with some prayer, so if you'd please pray with me. Father, we come before you this morning and just pray and ask that you would still our hearts, our minds, our souls. Father, we, we want to be still and know that you are God. Lord, we want to hear your word and we want to apply your word. Uh, and Lord, we want to see your word transform our lives. Would you please do that for us this morning, we pray. Amen. Amen. As I'm still learning and getting started with preaching still, and since last time I preached without slides and it went okay, I decided I'd try it again. <laughs> um, so, today the title of my sermon is The Fruit of Justification is Peace and Hope. And uh, we'll be going through Romans 5, verses 1 to 6 in a second. Um, but for those of you who don't know me, my name is Yuan. Um, moved with my family from South Africa to Australia about 14 years ago. Uh, since many people struggle with Yuan Kluister, I do go by JK. So that does make it a bit easier for people. And uh, I do really appreciate the opportunity to preach and um, come with you to sit under the Word of God uh, to hear him speak to us today. Now, before we actually look at Romans 5 verses 1 to 5, we actually need to look at chapter 4 to get an understanding of what Paul said so far. And so I'm just going to give a brief outline and then we'll read the passage as it comes onto the board. So in chapter 4, Paul writes about the fact that Abraham was made righteous and justified not through the works of the law and by participating in circumcision, thank God for that, but ultimately by believing in the promises of God. He was justified and made righteous through faith. And so not only is he the father of the circumcised, but he is also the father of those born of faith. And now we too, like the Jews, can sing, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons at Father Abraham. And we too are included as descendants of Abraham, not through the law or through circumcision, but rather through faith and through our belief in God's promises. Paul tells us that God is the God of the impossible, that he gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not yet exist. That while Abraham was old, and while Sarah was old, and though for 90 years they didn't have a child, Abraham faithfully believed in God's promise that he would give them a son. And this faith, this belief in God's surety of being able to do the impossible is why Abraham is called righteous, because he believed. And then in the last two verses of chapter 4, Paul shifts, and he goes from Abraham, and he moves to his audience in Rome, and he also moves to us with these words, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, 
For us who believed in Him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And now we get to our passage today. So if you would like to please turn to Romans 5 verses 1 to 5. And join me. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And so, I have a proposition for us this morning, and my proposition is that our justification births peace and hope while we are still in the storms of this life, and that joy and hope carries us to our final destination, eternity with God. See, part of my story was that in year 12, um, my parents sent me and my brother uh, and my sister to a Salvation Army uh, youth camp. It was a great camp. We met new friends. We had good food. There was an awesome slip and slide that a lot of us guys just ran and full-on dived onto. It hurt a little, but it was great fun. There was laughter. There was Bible trivia, uh, proper good messages. And though I can't remember the theme, I can't remember the passages, I can't remember anything of the talks, if I'm completely honest with you, but this I can remember. We had a time for personal reflection. And whatever the question was that was asked, I remember sitting down, thinking to myself, if God is looking at my life right now, He would not be smiling, but He would be frowning over my life. I tried through all of high school to be a good Christian. Tried really, really hard. I did not swear. I did not smoke. I did not get drunk. I did not do drugs. I didn't have sex. I, from the outside perspective, lived a fairly sinful life, uh, sinless life. But the reality is that I struggled with private sin that caused shame and guilt. The reality was that the righteousness that I did have was all based on my own good works, my own good merits. I did things that I thought was good, and I declared and I decided that I was good. It was self-righteousness. And the reality was that I was trying to earn my own salvation. I was trying to earn the favor of God. But no matter how much I tried, I could never uproot the sin that had sprung up within my life. At best, I could trim the hedges and make it look neat, but I could not utterly destroy it. And in the late hours of the night, when sleep eluded me, when I was confronted with 
the thoughts that I had, the deeds that I did, the words that I spoke, I was constantly confronted with my self-righteousness, my hypocrisy, and my sinful nature. In the darkness of night, when my silent thoughts ran wild, there was one predominantly thought among them all. If God was looking at my life, he would not be smiling, but he would be frowning. And yet, it was something that I, I so deeply desired, I really wanted to have my God, my Father, to smile over my life, to find joy and to find favor in me. It was something that I desired. I wanted to desire that peace, that joy, and an abundance of life. But instead, the peace eluded me, the joy escaped my grasp, and I felt like I was stuck in the mud, just going through the motions over and over and over and over again with hidden shame and hidden guilt, weighed down by my own sins. And then at some point when I was 18, 19 years old, I went to YWAM, and there, for the first time, I don't know how it was there, I've heard the gospel so many times, but at that point, the gospel of grace took a hold of my life. It didn't just become something that I knew, it became something that I experienced, something that I lived. We read in Romans 5 verses 6, these beautiful words, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for the ungodly. I can't help but agree with Charles Spurgeon who wrote these words. Christ died for the ungodly. Shout it, whisper it, print it in capitals, or write it in a large hand, speak it solemnly. It is not a thing for jest, speak it joyfully. It is not a theme for sorrow. Speak it firmly, it is an indisputable fact. Speak it earnestly. Here is a truth which ought to arouse our souls. Speak it, with the, speak it where the ungodly live, and that is your own house. Speak it also in the thin-stained streets. Stand tall and shout it in the prime of life, and sit down at the dying bed and read it in a tender whisper. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. This is the gospel of grace, the good news for sinners, good news for us sitting in this church this morning, that we are not justified by the works that we do. We are not justified by striving and trying harder and harder, but we are, we are justified by faith. And this faith is a free gift that God offers us. It's no wonder that Paul writes earlier in the letter and says, I'm not ashamed for the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. It is because of this gospel, because Christ died for the ungodly, that Romans 5 verses 1 and 2 is true. It is because of this gospel that we have peace with God, that we have grace in which we are now standing and positioned in and held fast in by God. It is because of this gospel that we have hope for the future glory that God has promised us. 
And it is this gospel that promises that God will pour out his love into our hearts through his Holy Spirit. Doesn't this good news melt your heart? And at a time when you thought that you couldn't earn the favor of God, doesn't this good news bring a tear to your eye? Doesn't this good news warm your heart and make your soul rejoice in Christ? It ought to. You don't have to earn God's favor anymore. Christ has already done it, and he offers us his reward. To all who call on his name for salvation, he has taken it upon himself to remove our sinful stained rags, and instead he takes his cloak of righteousness and he clothes us in it. And by doing so, he gives us a new title. He gives us the title of children. No longer are we children of wrath. No longer are we called children of disobedience. Rather, we are called children of God, sons and daughters of the Most High King. It's a pretty good swap. And at this, I just want to pause, and I've got a couple of questions I want to ask us. Are you a follower of Christ? Can you remember the joy of your salvation, that moment when the gospel entered your life, and you realized you had God's favor? Can you remember that sweet moment when you realized God wasn't frowning over your life, but he was smiling? Sit here this morning and ask God to return to you the joy of your salvation. Let us live in that joy. Ask him that through the warm rays of the gospel of grace, that we are filled with his peace and his hope. Maybe you're sitting here and like me in my teenage years, you're still trying to strive and earn your salvation. Stop striving for that which you cannot attain. In your own pride, you've actually become a Pharisee. Do you not know that the self-righteous is marked for condemnation in the courts of God? Do you not know that the tax collector who pleaded on his knees for mercy went home justified before God, while the the Pharisee, who already was self-righteous, returned with no justification? Jesus warns us in Matthew 23, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Accept the free gift of salvation that Christ offers you. Hang your life fully on Christ, who is alone able to hold you fast during the day of judgment. Only Christ was able to fully satisfy the law, and only through him can we access the grace of God. And that grace is available to you this morning. Maybe you're here, and you might still think to yourself, you don't need God, that he has no authority 
in your life. You can do what you want, you can say what you want, you can live how you want. Don't be like a stubborn child who thinks that their way is better than their parents' way. You can ask the parents sitting in the back, they know better than their little ones. Do you not know that if you are not God, that you are against God? There is no neutral ground. You are either choosing to submit your knee to the God of heaven and earth, or you are placing yourself in direct opposition to God as king of your own life. And there is only one king, there cannot be two. In Luke, God says that he will bring down the rulers from their thrones, but he will lift up those who humble themselves. I plead with you, if you are resisting God, if you are trying to rule your own life and be your own king, humble yourself before God. Submit your stubborn heart to him. Because his promise is not just that he will exalt you, his promise is also that he will fill you with the peace and the joy that no matter how much you fight and war, you cannot conquer in and of yourself. Augustine wrote in the fourth century these words, our hearts, O God, were made for thee, and never shall they rest until they rest in thee. For all of us who have found salvation in Christ, we have been given new life, a life connected with Jesus, the one and only mediator between God and man. In him, we have new hope, a hope that we could never have been realized before. We have a hope of seeing God face to face. Paul writes in verse two or three that we have the hope of the glory of God. And we have this hope, not in and of ourselves, but because Christ made it available. And we have the hope that when we do see God face to face, we will hear these words, well done, good and faithful servant. These are not words that we can earn in and of ourselves. Now, in these first two verses, we have got a lot of beautiful promises. We have the promise of justification, peace with God, a new position of grace, and the glory of God in heaven with him. But then Paul continues with verse three and four, and some of us might wonder why, because this is what is written not only do we have hope in the glory of God, but we also glory in our sufferings. Oh, Paul, why didn't you go there? We glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. But wait, how do we glory in our sufferings? It doesn't seem like a logical conclusion. But the reality is that our salvation changes everything, absolutely everything. Even the suffering that we experience is now worth it because our worldview, our priorities, our treasure, our dreams, everything who we used to be in our sinful selves has been changed and repurposed. We are able to weigh the promises of the world, the promises of Satan, and the promises of the flesh, and we can find them wanting. We know that they will not fulfill we no longer desire the treasures of this world, but rather we seek first the kingdom of heaven. And so there's this radical change. 
We no longer desire the gold, the silver, the jewels. No, we desire the poor to be clothed, the hungry to be fed, and the marginalized to be welcomed into a warm room with even warmer hearts. We no longer desire to succeed in all our projects and to tick off every to-do list, but rather to love and to serve others. And in our weakness, to be as Christ and to go on our knees and to wash the feet of those in need. We no longer desire to do everything and anything in our own power, but rather we boast in Christ, who is able to take our five loaves and our two fish and able to feed the 5,000. We no longer desire our own kingdom to grow, but rather like John the Baptist, we cry out with heartfelt conviction, I must decrease and he must increase. We no longer desire to run the rat race to see our own estate and popularity grow, but rather we celebrate with those who celebrate and we mourn with those who mourn in their joy and in their distress. This, brothers and sisters, is the beauty of the cross. It's the cross of Christ that makes all things new, including us, sinners. And it's at the cross that our creator, our king, hung in darkness, chaos, was crucified by mere mortal men, subject to Satan's schemes played out by self-righteous men. Yes, we still struggle and we still feel the consequences of sin. Like Jesus who wept at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, we too acknowledge and wrestle with the pain of suffering. We are saddened when we hear of a six-month-old who's diagnosed with cancer. We struggle with the loss of a loved one who we didn't get to say goodbye to, but we know we'll see them again. We cry because of the suffering and the sickness of a best friend who's paralyzed for life. We wrestle with God when we lose our work and when our family's finances are smashed on the rocks. We struggle with the knowledge that wars will continue and that evil men and women will continue to prosper. We still feel the effects of pain and suffering bearing down on us. We do not escape these realities. But like Paul, we too are given joy incomprehensible. We are given peace despite the circumstances. For he writes in 2 Corinthians 4, we are hard pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abolished, struck down but not destroyed. So let us today take God at his word and together believe that we can glory in our suffering. With this new hope, we no longer see our physical restraints and suffering as an evil to be avoided, but rather we are able to recognize the sovereign hand of a good father who walks with his children in every situation. 
and we are able to look up into the face of our Savior, Jesus Christ, as he smiles with the crown of thorns that inaugurated his own kingship. And we follow him as he calls us to take up our cross and follow him. The gospel of grace is this, that we are no longer following our sinful pursuits that like strawn wood get burned up to ash in the refiner's fire. But rather now, with the gospel of grace, which is like gold, we are being refined by the trials and the sufferings, day after day being refined until we are perfectly purified and reflect the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't just leave us with the fact that we are going to glory in our suffering, but he has a promise in verse 5 that God's love is poured out into our hearts through his Holy Spirit. And here we are able to benefit from a long list of men and women who've lived through the ages who are able to testify of this promise of God. And I only want to touch on one example, the example of Horatio and Anna Spafford. They lived in the 1800s, and they saw tragedy upon tragedy, I can't even, tragedy upon tragedy, not too dissimilar to Job. In 1870, they lost their youngest son. He was four years old when he was struck with illness and died. A year later, fires went through Chicago, and they lost wealth and property. And then two years later, in 1873, when they were on their way from the U.S. to England to join D.L. Moody, a preacher, to do the work of God, Horatio sent his wife and his four daughters ahead of him while he was finishing business transactions. And on the way, their boat collided with another ship. Their ship sank in 12 minutes. All four of the daughters drowned, and only Anna survived. Yet, despite all these tragedies that followed one after another, after another, after another, both Horatia and his wife Anna experienced the hope and the love of God that was poured out into their hearts through the Holy Spirit. While he was on his voyage to England to join his wife, the captain summoned him and told him, this is the place where the ship sank. It was at that point where he returned to his cabin and he penned the song, It Is Well With My Soul. And he wrote these amazing words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well it is well with my soul. He is one example of many, many other examples, many examples sitting in this church of the love of God being poured out into our hearts in the midst of suffering. This is the hope that we have, that through the justification that we have in Christ, we can bear the fruit of peace with God and hope for the future, no matter what comes. 